comprehensive, relevant, and insightful conversations about health and medicine happen here on MedStar Health Doc Talk. Historically, lung cancer has topped the list of deadliest cancers, surpassing the next two cancer killers combined with its annual toll. If there's an upside, it's that the annual incidence rate has shown a decline through the years, with fewer men getting the diagnosis than women. We are here with experts from MedStar Georgetown Cancer Institute at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital to learn what we need to know about lung cancer, what the symptoms are, when we should go for a screening, treatment options, and how to reduce the risk of getting a diagnosis. I'm your host, Deborah Schindler. Welcome medical oncologist Dr. Joshua Royce and pulmonologist Dr. Rebecca Crockmull. Thank you both for being here with us on MedStar Health Doc Talk. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to get us started, explain your roles. How do you differentiate what you do uh, and how do you work together? Sure. It, it really is a very multidisciplinary approach. I get referrals from outside physicians for people that had CAT scans done. They found a suspicious nodule and we may biopsy it. We may watch it. If we do a biopsy and we get cancer, then they usually go over and maybe see a medical oncologist or, or other um, folks involved in the treatment of cancer. Because as a pulmonologist, your focus is the health of the lungs. That's correct. How do patients come to see you? Are they referred because they have a lung cancer diagnosis? Or do they come to see you because they have other respiratory issues and in the process a diagnosis is made? Yes. Um, so they may come to me directly. They may come to uh, Dr. Royce directly. It just sort of depends how they get put into the system. Dr. Royce, explain what your role is and how you fit into the comprehensive care Sure. So I'm a thoracic medical oncologist and assistant professor of medicine at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. You know, our role as medical oncologists, typically we are brought in after the diagnosis is made um, and are kind of determining, given the disease stage, you know, at what point does systemic therapy, so chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, potentially trials interplay into the treatment plan? I rarely will get a, a referral for someone with a you know a large lung mass or, or something that clearly looks like a, a lung cancer just to kind of get the ball rolling. But then I'm very quickly getting Dr. Crockmall involved because we, we definitely need a diagnosis before we could determine a systemic treatment plan and, and really an overall treatment plan because the underlying histology, you know, what the lung cancer looks like under the microscope really dictates the treatment plan going forward. All right, we're going to get to the treatment plan. Let's uh, take a closer look at why the numbers are so high and what we can do about that. The American Lung Association reports that the survival rate among Americans has increased 21%, but even with that, someone in the U.S. is diagnosed with lung cancer about every two and a half minutes. And every day, lung cancer takes the lives of nearly 400 people. Yeah, so I think one thing that's important is that, and I'm sure Dr. Krokmaul will get into more detail about screening, but we traditionally think of patients who develop lung cancer as having a prominent smoking history, um, and that is obviously a known risk factor for the development of lung cancer, but there are many patients who develop lung cancer without any clear identifiable risk factors. Uh, these patients actually commonly will have an alteration in the DNA of the cancer itself that causes it to grow. This is not typically a DNA mutation that is heritable, though there are some rare inherited uh, cancer mutations that may cause lung cancer, but it's much less common than other cancer types. But in these uh, lung cancers where 
uh, there is an underlying mutation in the DNA that causes the cancer to grow, we actually do more commonly see these in, in younger, oftentimes female patients with no smoking history. The prototypical patient is actually uh, a female of Asian ancestry that, that is younger and never smoker. So that is really where uh, these disparities are, are important and really where we don't yet capture all patients with screening. Right. So I, I think there is certainly propensity for some of the environmental and occupational exposures that could be different between men and women. Um, you know, there is asbestos exposure. There's things that could be, um, you know, environmental in, in people that would be working in certain environments. And, and certainly there is a lot of secondhand smoke exposure as well. And I think that that could be across the board, though, for men and for women. To my knowledge, there's no clear risk factors for why these genetic mutations happen sporadically. Um, and why they happen more frequently in patients who are younger, female, the the Asian ancestry. Uh, but it does speak toward, you know, wanting to capture more patients with, with screening and other modalities to prevent a, a tragic, you know, metastatic or stage four diagnosis um, in someone where there are unfortunately no current guidelines for screening in these patients. So we can't say, though, that being a man is a risk factor. No, I wouldn't say that that there's a clear gender risk for, for development of lung cancer. In spite of the incidence being greater for lung cancer? No, I, 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 think, I think it may have been more of just historical work environmental exposure. Uh, but if anything, for some of these, again, genomic driver populations, these patient populations that are never smokers, if anything, that's more frequently encountered in women than men. What about vaping? Yeah. So vaping can still be tobacco exposure, and that's it's still not beneficial from a, a lung cancer perspective, a lung function perspective as well. And there's actually associated vaping-induced lung injuries that are related to vaping itself. So it's still something to stay Have they made from. a connection yet with cancer, though, uh, lung cancer and vaping? Vaping is allowed in so many more places than cigarette smoking, so you would think that people who vape are doing more of it, perhaps, than even cigarette smokers. And that's been proven as well, yeah. It's still tobacco. So there would be a link. That's a scary thought. Yeah. Some yeah. of the young people. Yeah. You, you've seen what lung cancer patients go through. How do you react when you see young people then vaping or smoking? Does that make you want to just go lecture them? It, it certainly <laughs> does. Um, we talk about smoking cessation in uh, plenty of patients each day. So, of course, it's it's not something that you want young children to to take up. And I think that there's been you know media exposure about the marketing campaigns targeting younger children with vaping as well, and and how that's not in anyone's interest. Exactly, limiting like the fruit flavors right. and the things yeah. that try to make this ex exactly yeah. appealing to younger people. Correct, correct. Is the cancer itself different if you're a smoker than if you're not a smoker? Yeah, it's bio biologically very different. Um, and I mean, it, it still on first blush would look the same under the microscope to the pathologist. They'd still say, for example, this is a non-small cell lung cancer, lung adenocarcinoma. So from that standpoint, it's difficult to differentiate that from a lung adenocarcinoma in someone who's a smoker, but where the real difference lies is at the DNA level. That's why we actually profile all patients with a new diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer, because ultimately the treatment plan is vastly different for someone who has one of these mutations in, in a never smoker compared to someone who does not. Less than a quarter of lung cancer patients learn that they have the disease in an early stage. Why is that? 
think a lot of it has to do with lack of symptoms. You can have a lung nodule, a lung mass, you can have enlarged lymph nodes in the center of your chest and you have no symptoms related to it. It's not until you develop symptoms that you might come to seek out medical attention. And for that reason, that's why when those um, symptoms develop, it's usually at a later stage. Someone that is more short of breath, losing weight, more tired, coughing up blood, things like that, that um, signals that there's something wrong, they come to medical attention, and then it um, is at a, a later stage that is diagnosed later. And this is also where screening comes in. So the fact that we can incorporate screening for populations that are qualified for it, then that will help to catch cancers at an earlier stage. Which brings us to the low-dose CT scan. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Sure. There have been studies that have been done both in the U.S. and Europe abroad regarding screening for lung cancer. And the goal is that you want to find a way that you can catch lung cancer at its earliest stage, at its most treatable stage, before it goes anywhere else in the body. And the studies have shown that a low-dose, annual low-dose CT scan for people that have smoked heavily in the past or have a certain age group or have quit within a certain amount of time, which we can go through, those people are meant to get the CAT scans to be able to catch things at an earlier stage, again, when it's much more treatable. Why don't they just administer CT scans for anybody then? Like an annual mammogram. Right, right. Well, I think you still have to think about the risk-benefit ratio for it. You're going to ex have some exposure to radiation with it. It's a low dose. It's meant to be as minimal of exposure as possible. But you don't want to continuously expose people to it if there's not going to be, you know, kind of an upside to it. And there's also the risk of having false positives. And this is across the board. When you have a lung cancer screening scan, you could have a false positive from, you know, a nodule from another finding anywhere else in the body. That's the risk benefit ratio with it. And we have studies that show that for uh, people that were smokers that quit within a certain amount of time, that that's where the benefit lies. Let me understand the false positive. So someone gets a CT scan and they show that there's a lesion or a shadow in the in the imaging and they they proceed with some kind of cancer treatment? No, no, no. Not not treatment until you do a biopsy. So you could do a biopsy and it could be benign. It could be infection. It could be prior infection, resolving infection. It could be um, uh, nothing that needs treatment as well. But uh, meaning that the false positive comes from the fact that we found a nodule and we did a biopsy. It's not cancer, but you did get an invasive procedure related to it. Yeah, we, we, we would never move forward with an active anti-cancer therapy, chemoimmunotherapy, anything like that without a histologic diagnosis of a cancer. That's why I was trying to understand why it would be called a false positive. Yeah, it's called a false positive because you picked up something on that scan. You saw a nodule on that CAT scan. It's not cancer. We right. did the screening for cancer. It's not cancer. But you found something abnormal on that scan in the lung. That's why it's considered a false positive. It's not cancer, but it is something that we didn't know about, we found, and we had to act on. So the guidelines are relatively newly changed. Correct. Um, do you want to go through that? Sure. So we've actually, the guidelines were changed past couple of years to incorporate more people that were smoking. So the age is actually decreased where according to the United States Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF, which always trips me up, um, that the current recommendations are that you're age 50 to 80. You have a 20 pack year smoking history, meaning that you could have smoked one pack a day for 20 years. You could have smoked two packs a day for 10 years. It just depends how many pack years you have. And if you're a current smoker or you quit within the past 15 years, you would qualify for lung cancer screening. Are there any other diagnostic tests available for lung cancer? 
Um, not really at this time. One of the um, biggest studies uh, that was done compared x-rays to CAT scans, and they found that CAT scans were much more sensitive, much better for picking up lung nodules, lung cancer. And so x-rays have kind of gone by the wayside for screening. It's it's much more symptom-specific when things that would be done, if you started to have symptoms, then we might do different things. But from a screening perspective, not not as much. Yeah, and I'll add, you know, while we use blood tests after diagnosis is made to look for some of these mutations that I, I previously spoke about. Uh, and there's a lot of active investigation of can you do a blood test or a saliva test to, to make you know a, a cancer screening or cancer diagnosis. That's really still a ways away from prime time and is, is not something that's likely to be uh, instituted in screening um, for many years. You mentioned that there are specific types of cancers. Are they discernible in a CT scan? Um, it's, it's truly at a molecular level. You have to do a biopsy. You have to look at it under the microscope. And, okay. you know. well, let's talk then about the next step after a CT scan is done. A biopsy? Not always. It just depends. So you'll usually get referred to a pulmonologist. We'll look at the scans. We'll discuss it with our thoracic radiologist. We'll get a history. What have you been exposed to? Have you been sick recently? You know, other things that could be causing these nodules, this mass, whatever it is. And then you might have additional scans first before a biopsy. You may have something called a PET scan where we look for activity in that nodule. You um, may have other procedures that would be done if there's something more concerning, such as fluid around the lung, things like that. Um, but ultimately, Ultimately, yes, you most likely will have a biopsy. But there are, you know, we kind of try to carefully weed out um, things that we think are not cancer. And maybe they could just be followed uh, radiographically with another scan in, in a couple months. Tell me what kind of lung cancers there are. Yeah. So, you know, what I would say is, you know, I, I have three three questions that I uh, discuss with patients on a new diagnosis. And that is, what is it? Where is it? And how do we treat it? The answers to those first two questions are super important to get to the third. Um, oftentimes it probably is where before what, because as Dr. Krokmal alluded to, we want to see where in the body are these concerning areas, because ultimately you want to try to biopsy what we would say the most distant area is. And what I mean by that is if we're concerned about a primary lung cancer and we see a spot in the liver, we'll oftentimes want to biopsy the liver because that would change the stage of the cancer from perhaps an earlier stage one, two, or three to a stage four, and that has implications on the treatment. So that's kind of where we need to utilize staging in concert with our biopsy plan to get the accurate stage of a cancer. So that is kind of the where, and then in consort the what, once we have a biopsy, you know, I would say there are two main types of lung cancer, small cell and non-small cell, small cell being almost exclusively associated with smoking. It's the most aggressive type of lung cancer. And then there's non-small cell, and within that, we we oftentimes group uh, with adenocarcinoma and what's called squamous cell carcinoma. There are other subtypes. There's lung cancers called neuroendocrine carcinomas, large cell carcinomas. But broadly speaking, those are the main types of lung cancer that we see and treat. And then there are other rare tumors, thymoma, which is something that uh, is kind of in the front part of the chest. Um, that kind of encompasses the main types of cancers of the chest that we that we see and treat on a day-to-day basis. Where does mesothelioma fit in? Is that's a lung cancer or something else? It's a type of cancer that there's kind of a clear, almost cellophane uh, lining around the lungs called the pleura. 
um, and it basically allows the lungs to expand and contract uh, without you know, rubbing against the chest wall and allowing this to happen uh, without friction. And so rarely uh, this lining can actually develop cancer in it. We all think of asbestos as a, as a prominent exposure for mesothelioma. Smoking itself can, can be an, a risk factor as well. And there are some patients that don't have prominent risk factors. It's a much rarer type of cancer. Uh, and it's uh, treated somewhat differently than lung cancer. There are some similarities and some differences. Um, so it kind of falls within the, within the large umbrella, but I wouldn't call it a lung cancer per se. Okay. The CDC estimates that 20% of people with lung cancer never smoked. And we've talked about that, but it being a different kind of cancer and thereby treated differently. Is it going to be more treatable if they have a cancer that isn't a non-smoking lung cancer? So, so yes and no. What I would say is that in patients who have a prominent smoking history who have their lung function affected by that, um, that can oftentimes, if it's more localized, you know, affect our treatment plan and whether surgery is safe and feasible or whether we have to switch to a more radiation-focused approach. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Crockmall can touch more on kind of lung function and and, and how we assess that. Um Actually, yeah. Do you want to comment on that at all? Sure. Yeah. Probably what we think of as uh, uh, contribute to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is a combination of emphysema and chronic bronchitis. And when you have that, that decreases your lung function. It basically creates non-functioning lung. And when that happens, you may become symptomatic from it and you um, you know, need different treatments for that. But that may also affect your ability to get certain treatments for lung cancer, specifically surgery. If your lung function's not great, we're not going to want to take out part of your lung and make you feel worse afterwards. How much lung can you take out? I mean, how much lung can we live without? Um, right. So if you have great lung function, you can live without one lung. If you have not great lung function, you might not be able to live without one lobe of the lung. It just all depends kind of where you are going into that. And smoking is the biggest uh, contribution to that. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, estimates that radon causes about 21,000 lung cancer deaths each year. The risk of lung cancer from radon exposure is higher for people who smoke than for people who don't smoke. What's your advice to patients when it comes to radon? You know, there are remediation programs for it. You can um, actually get home testing kits sent out through the Environmental Protection Agency. They've got a kind of a wealth of information online about it. And then you can um, get local remediation um, services that can remove radon from the home. Are you able to identify the cancer as coming from radon? I'd say it's difficult to pinpoint radon exposure, right? It's not something that you smell or if you don't have a detector. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm going through this personally just in the sense of having having moved recently. And, and in, luckily in the Maryland area, there's lots of mandates on radon testing on and radon remediation systems. It's very easy to have this tested. And you can even actually buy home radon detectors um, that are both battery powered and plug-in where, you know, if you're concerned, Concerned for any reason, you know, you can have those because it's not typically a, oh, this is a quick exposure, one-time exposure, and then, then you're at increased risk. It's something that's more chronic, ongoing. Um, and that's why it's important to, if you live in an area where there's concern for radon exposure, really try to, these remediation systems work well. Um, they've been used for, for decades, and it's something that's really easy to mitigate against. Okay, once a diagnosis is made, let's go through the treatment options. What are the steps that you would normally go through for a patient who just receives a diagnosis? Yeah, I, so it, it may start with a pulmonologist and it may start with a biopsy. 
And um, from that, we look to create a stage. We want to figure out what stage this is. Has there been any spread outside the chest, spread to the lymph nodes, anything like that? Once we can establish a stage, then we start talking about treatment because different treatment options depend upon a different stage. And how do you determine if it has spread to a lymph node? Um, so with scans, with a CAT scan, a PET scan, and usually with a biopsy. Okay. So when we biopsy a lung nodule, we always biopsy the lymph nodes in the center of the chest at the same time to make sure there's been no spread there. Then what happens next? Yeah. So if it is an early stage and it's somebody that is able to do surgery, we would refer to a thoracic surgeon and talk about surgery. If it is a later stage or an early stage that uh, can't have surgery, we may involve a radiation oncologist. And then um, if it's more of a later stage, um, we always, um, and the um, medical oncologist is always involved as well. Yeah, and I'll add that, you know, really any new diagnosis, except for maybe the most earliest stages, small nodules, we will discuss at our multidisciplinary tumor board. Um, so we have a weekly meeting that involves medical oncology, uh, surgery, radiation oncology, and pulmonology, where we discuss the imaging, we would discuss the biopsy results if we have them to come up with a treatment plan. And then if patients have a, you know, a cancer diagnosis that's early stage, early localized, locally advanced, where we can come at this from one of several avenues, we will actually then typically first see patients in our interdisciplinary lung clinic, which also meets weekly and kind of has the same actors. You have the pulmonology, uh, uh, thoracic medical oncology, radiation oncology, and surgery. And we all see the patient together in the same room and, and are able to really have that discussion with the patient. Hopefully it can be a little overwhelming, but hopefully patients, you know, can get an understanding of their treatment options, uh, hear from all members of the team so that an appropriate plan can be made quickly and really be tailored to the individual patient. Differentiate for us what targeted drug therapy is versus immunotherapy. Yeah, so so when we're talking about systemic therapies and and kind of the options that we have do depend a little bit on the stage. Um, someone with the earliest stage one cancers hopefully can be cured with surgery or radiation alone. Um, but then as we get into later stages, if we're talking about surgery, um, we oftentimes are utilizing chemo and immunotherapy or chemotherapy and targeted therapy, depending on some of the things like mutations that I spoke about earlier. But when you're at, talking about an underlying difference in mechanism of action of therapy, so immunotherapy versus targeted therapy, immunotherapy activates one's own immune system to fight cancer. And we know it's really made a major impact on multiple cancer types. Probably the most prominent example is melanoma, which went from a, a type of cancer that was extremely difficult to treat, that one that we can see really durable long-term survival with immunotherapy. Lung cancer, we've also seen significant improvements in advanced disease, but it is is a different treatment than targeted therapy, and this is where the underlying differences in the type of cancer uh, really matter. Immunotherapy has seen its most benefit in patients who have um, a significant smoking history who don't have these mutations that are more commonly seen in never smokers. Um, so immunotherapy is really a mainstay of treatment for those patients. And on the converse, uh, for those who have one of these mutations, there are targeted therapies that can be quite effective, but they only work if that mutation is present. And what that speaks toward is the importance of what we call next-generation sequencing testing, molecular testing, where we look at the DNA level of the cancer to say, are there mutations there? Um, what is the unique profile of the patient to guide us toward a immunotherapy backbone systemic therapy versus a targeted therapy backbone therapy plan? 
This just speaks toward the underlying makeup of the cancers, the underlying DNA level. These are, we're all talking about non-small cell lung cancers here that at the level of the microscope look very similar, but you have to get to a deeper level, to the DNA level of the cancer to tease out what the most appropriate treatment plan will be. Is Keytruda the immunotherapy that you would use? Keytruda is a type of, is, a, is one brand of, of immunotherapy called pembrolizumab that blocks a checkpoint called PD-1. Basically, the way I describe it to patients is that one way that cancer can grow and spread is it can hide out from the immune system and it utilizes this flag called PD-1 that when the immune system sees this flag, it kind of goes to sleep and it can't recognize the cancer. And so what these immunotherapies that block PD-1 or PD-L1 do is that they try to reawaken the immune system so it can fight the cancer, to make the cancer visible to the immune system. Keytruda is one of these immunotherapies, but there are many others. Opdivo, uh, Tecentric, Infinzi, these are all brand names. I right, tend to gotcha. more in generic names, Atezolizumab, Nivolumab, Dervalumab, Simiplumab. The, the <laughs> list is ongoing, and, and the type of therapy that we use uh, depends a bit on the cancer stage. Um, everything is evidence-based. Um, I don't prefer one over the other. I just look at the evidence. Um, but the underlying mechanism of these therapies is quite similar. Have you had a patient with the abscobal effect? So what's called the abscopal effect is if you give radiation to one area, can that lead to kind of an activation of an anti-cancer response to other areas in the body? I will say that we view this more of an effect phenomena than something that's, that's truly happens widespread. There are a lot of studies that look into this, but so far it's not, you know, a common component of our treatment to say, well, let's radiate one area and then we can get an effect elsewhere. What I will say is in patients who have limited metastatic disease, and what I mean by that is let's say cancer has spread outside the lungs to only one or a couple areas, maybe one spot in the brain, maybe one spot in the liver or a spot in the bone. Oftentimes we will take a more aggressive approach to to bring in surgery and radiation to try to be aggressive in eradicating all the areas of the cancer that we see. But but again, this this abscopal phenomenon of using radiation to kind of elicit a response in other areas of the body is still very much under investigation. We had a case like that at MedStar Franklin Square where they were just radiating one singular tumor to make the patients more comfortable and it wound up wiping out other tumors in his in his lung cancer. It was an amazing case. Those are the kinds of cases I think that everybody wants to hear about. Oh, of course. I'd like to ask doctors if they have a memorable or a favorite case or one that stands out or one that sort of represents them the most, because sometimes these are the cases that listeners find hope in. If they know someone with a diagnosis or maybe they're going through it themselves and they hear a hopeful story. Sure. So what I'd say is that I think every case brings its uh, a unique aspect to care. There's That's really where the art of medicine is, me- is melded with the science. I think there are so many patients where we discuss and, you know, you have guidelines, but you almost kind of got to throw out the guidelines out the window and, and really treat each patient as an individual person. And I think there are multiple aspects to that. That's the multidisciplinary care that we provide each and every day with experts from various disciplines, you know, meeting every week to discuss each patient at that patient level. It's doing this molecular next generation sequencing to really target a unique systemic therapy approach to patients. As I say, it's all about finding um, the right therapy, not the fastest therapy and finding the therapy that's right for you. So I think from this perspective, Every patient brings something unique, something that I can learn from every day and hopefully continue to improve my skill set and my ability to care for patients. 
some of the work that I do is about uh, palliation from an interventional perspective. So if there's a tumor blocking the airway, if there's fluid around the lungs, things like that. And we do have ways that we can ameliorate those symptoms. And that can be very rapid and um, almost immediate. And so I think that it's very rewarding when somebody can have a, an easy procedure and feel immediately better rather than having to you know, wait a, a prolonged amount of time. With the statistics being what they are in lung cancer, I sometimes wonder how you continue to come to work and do what you do. You have to feel that there's something on the horizon. Of course. And and we, you know, we got into this field, or at least I will say that I did because I wanted to be able to help, right? People go into medicine for that. So if you, even though it can be a little disheartening knowing the statistics, you want to be able to provide the best care that you can and and you have the training and the expertise to be able to do so. So it's kind of why I keep showing up. Right. You have to be motivated by yeah. the positive cases yeah. that, you, that you've handled. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll add too that I think we enter a patient's lives, a lives during oftentimes a very difficult part of their life. Um, if it's a metastatic diagnosis, we know it's not curable. But I think there's something that's very meaningful in being able to make a positive impact in someone's life during a very difficult time. Absolutely. You know, I don't think any patient or their family is going to look on that experience as a, as a necessarily as a positive uh, right. part part of their life. But at least if we know that we could be a, a responsive care team that can really help partner uh, with patients and their families, really provide empathic support and really be there for them during a trying time. And And I think that even though it can be difficult to, you know, to have many patients that, that don't make it, I think that having that positive impact on a patient's life is, is, is really quite meaningful. What would be your message to uh, listeners today about lung cancer, smoking, vaping, and any of the other risks? Sure. Um, I think that we have resources to help you quit smoking, <laughs> and we are uh, very willing to to help with that. Um, we have even at Georgetown we have um, programs uh, related to helping you um, stop smoking and and um, that have been put into place to be able to work towards that. Um, and I think that you have to kind of advocate for yourself a little bit as well with lung cancer screening. Um, the guidelines have recently changed. We know what they are now, and it's also very widely and readily available. Yeah, I agree. And I would say that if, if you're not sure you qualify for lung cancer screening, you have a history of smoking, talk to your primary doctor. If they don't seem to be sure, refer them to us. We'd be happy to see you and, and have the conversation. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're concerned about a family history of lung cancer, even though that's much rarer, you know, still have that conversation. See one of our pulmonologists, see Dr. Crockmall, see Dr. Anderson, because, you know, we, we again, it's how we treat people at MedStar, right? To, to try to treat people individually and not just go by broad guidelines. And so if there's any concern, we have no problem seeing you and, um, and really trying to get to the bottom of screening is necessary. Real quick, what's the laundry list on the risk factors? What do people need to know what, as far as risks go for lung cancer? To me, one, two, and three are smoking, unfortunately, still. Yeah, and then there are things that I think we're just learning more about environmental exposure. If you're living in cities and kind of levels of pollution, there's been some interesting data presented there. I don't think, to my knowledge, we we know of how best to to, pre to prevent that. You know, in terms of is it beneficial if you live in a city to wear a mask? I, I don't think we really know that information. And obviously, there are things like you know when we had those major fires in this area um, in Canada with the smoke. And obviously, if, if you know that it's it's dangerous to go out with that particulate matter in the air. 
there, then obviously don't or wear a mask if you go outside. And then I think other work-related exposures that we've talked about, you know, asbestos exposure, the radon exposures, doing what you can to mitigate that is probably all you can do for the most part. What about diet? Does diet have a play? No, to my knowledge, no, both from a cancer risk or from a lot of patients ask, well, if I'm getting systemic therapy, do I need to change my diet at all? And I will say really for most lung cancer patients, you probably don't need to change your diet too much. Um, There's some evidence that probiotics may actually decrease a uh, response to immunotherapy. So we might try to stay away from the probiotic yogurt if you're getting immunotherapy. But most most patients don't need to make any major dietary changes. And we, as, as practitioners will review all natural supplements, all things to see if there's any data on whether it can promote a more effective cancer response or importantly also inhibit a cancer response or make someone at risk for more side effects. Any final thoughts? I guess I would just say that, you know, um, a personalized approach to your cancer treatment plan is important. You know, also we oftentimes will see patients and then help to get patients plugged in closer to home because we'll see patients from Southern Maryland, we'll see patients from Virginia, from from north of here, and it can be a really challenge to 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 come here, the resources, and and to come here on a regular basis. But we will always be a part of a patient's treatment plan, even if they're get a treat getting treated locally. Um, and so that's why I would encourage you know. You get a second opinion and, and you're concerned, oh, what, I'm, I'm not going to be a, a part of this treatment team. You're always going to be part of our team and we're always going to be uh, helping to take care of you. I, I think that uh, we've spoken on it, but it, it truly is a very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary treatment team and, and from a, a diagnosis all the way through um, you know, staging and treatment. So many of us work together all the time. This is what we do. Wonderful. And thank you. Thank you for what you do. We've been talking with Dr. Joshua Royce and Dr. Rebecca Crockmull at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on MedStar Health Doc Talk. For more information on lung cancer or to schedule an appointment, call the MedStar Georgetown Cancer Institute or visit medstarhealth.org backslash services backslash lung hyphen cancer to learn more.